Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. A little quick note before we start the episode, I wanted to give our interns an opportunity to experience being both a podcast guest host and a podcast guest. So in the next couple episodes, you will be hearing Millie and Vagine interview one another on their own episodes so they can get that experience and make the most out of their internship. Enjoy. One of the reasons it resonated with me so much was because it truly made me understand the importance of being kind and compassionate especially in the difficult and divisive world we live in today three two one my name is Esprit Devora, host of the women in tech show The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create the Women in Tech show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. Hi, this is Joe Peterson. I'm the Vice President of Cloud and Security with Clarify 360. I've been listening to the Women in Tech podcast for about a year, and I was drawn in by the energy and enthusiasm of the Women in Tech podcast. Esprit does a really great job in sharing stories of women in tech so that young female listeners can put themselves in the shoes of these women speaking. See, I strongly believe that if we don't show young women the way forward in tech by sharing our stories, then they won't know what's possible. The stories are what creates the value and inspiration. Great job, guys. everyone, it's Virginia Celestine here joining you all the way from New Jersey. I'm currently interning at Women in Tech with Esprit and I've learned so much about leadership and social media. Today I will be interviewing Milita Kaur and we will be talking about her aspiration as well as diving a bit more of who she is. So to begin with, tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what you do. Absolutely. So my name's Millie. I'm 16 years old. And if you couldn't already tell by my accent, I'm British. Um, I'm still at school studying towards my A-levels in Latin, computer science and religion, philosophy and ethics. I'm hoping to study classics and Italian at university in a couple of years. Wow, interesting, interesting. So much interest, so much um, um, potential. Um, and when did you first become interested in tech? I've always been a bit of a tinkerer, I suppose. When I was younger, I used to drive my parents crazy when I would break apart pens, uh, compasses, anything I get, I could get my hands on, really. And then I would attempt to put it back together again. I absolutely loved breaking an object down and understanding its key basic components and then develop developing it back into the intricate object it was originally 
and one day I saw the intricacies of the motherboard of a computer and I then suddenly became absolutely fascinated with computers and all things tech. So my father enrolled me at Disco G Coding Academy where Gerard, my amazing teacher, helped foster my love of coding. Now, of course, there's a lot more to computer science and technology than just a bunch of zeros, ones, bits and bytes. Just by having any sort of electronic device, we can be connected to the internet and therefore the world. But one fact that I find really quite nerve-wracking is that the whole internet is essentially 400 cables under the ocean and all of GPS is just a mere 31 satellites. So every time you check the location, you're using at least four of these. And it's so odd because you might be wondering, oh, I wonder where the nearest sushi place is. And to find out, you end up using like 10% of the world's GPS satellites to check. Technology is amazing, but at the same time, the architecture of the internet is quite flimsy. It's not built like a physical building. And it's not something that you can just take apart and put back together again, like one of my pens. Its building blocks are actually quite wobbly and unstable. And my point is, yes, computers and the internet are extraordinary, but it still has its flaws, which can be explored and improved on. I've always had an affinity for fixing things in my household. If there's something that's broken, like a broken bit of kitchen equipment, for example, that I can't put back together again. It's just thrown out. <laughs> and so one of the things that drew me to learning not only how to code, but also other aspects of computer science was the unusual architecture of the internet. And I'm not saying that one day I will fix the whole thing, but it's always interesting to think about and to theorise how you might go about fixing it. Amazing, amazing. Wow. So you really are crushing it, literally. <laughs> what interests me is your journey into classics in Latin. You know, you you just, in one side, you're doing technology, in the other side, you are very person um, between the heart and the technology. Tell me about it. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, I started coding when I was 10 and was really into all things tech. And so when I first started learning Latin, my teacher, shout out to Mr. Athan, um, he had taught me the language in a way that was kind of like a language puzzle um, and that appealed to the computer scientist in me. It was so satisfying to break the Latin sentence apart, decode it, analyse it, put it back together again. Um, reading Latin was like trying to decipher the function of a line of code. There's actually, I think, an entire model of algorithm designed to do exactly that. It's called decomposition, where you break complex problems into smaller, more manageable parts and eventually combine it all to reach a solution or an answer. And I was, without realising, using this technique I'd learned from coding to make sense of my Latin sentences. But it is a 
bidirectional process in that learning Latin has significantly improved my ability to recognise patterns, for instance. Um, and at the moment, there are a chorus of leaders warning us about the widening skills gap. And so to answer that problem, I say we need more coding classicists, people who can do both. Technology is infiltrating our lives in a way that we've never seen before. And although classics is not about to have some sort of transformative moment in the way that tech is right now, it's important, if not even essential, that we continue supporting people to develop these diverse skills. And this can only be gained through studying the humanities. After all, so many of our attitudes and values are derived from the classical world. Wow, interesting. I've never heard of that, um, how technology and coding breaking down, you know, um, mathematical um, formulas can help you, you know, study um, languages. I remember when I was um, learning piano, they told me that if I learn piano, I can learn every language that I want because piano is so like, is so, I will say, you know, studying the notes everything in the piano we begin good at it it's so um it's so it's a lot of work it's a lot of, it's just it's just learning a new language and you know if you get that mastered you can just learn everything every language but it's interesting that you there's other dimension of learning like you just said about technology um how do you think technological um was in the I'm saying um, technology was in the ancient world. Well, I think we sometimes wildly underestimate how advanced people were in the past. Um, the ancient world was home to so many technological innovations and advances. And one of my favourite examples to consider when looking at the technological timeline is a discovery that was made about 120 years ago, where divers found this hunk of corroded metal in the shipwreck in Greece. Um, and it was later discovered that this random bit of block they found amongst all the other marble, jewellery, ancient coins actually had gear wheels inside. And this was shocking because anything from ancient Greece could not, should not really, have gear wheels. And these were precision gears with teeth that are about like a millimetre or so long. And it's called the Antikythera machine or mechanism and has absolutely fascinated archaeologists, uh, mathematicians and scientists for decades. Um, because it, what it does is it's a machine dedicated to calculating the cycles of the cosmos. Um, and it's so amazing that the ancient Greeks were able to not only physically create this technology, but also come up with the actual ideas to accomplish it. And so we've had to rethink the history of technology completely as a result of this technology. Um, I think it was Arthur C. Clarke who said that if the ancient Greeks had actually understood the capabilities of this technology, then they would have been on the moon within, I think, something like 
300 years. And the other interesting thing about this is that the Antikythera uh, mechanisms wasn't unique. There would have been others like this in ancient Greece. So to understand the technological world we live in today, we need to understand its history. And what this example tells us is that history is different than what we thought. It started earlier and has developed sophisticated technology and it then seemed to go backwards. And we see this all the time. Take the collapse of the Bronze Age as another example. There were these incredibly advanced ancient civilizations around the Eastern Mediterranean that lasted for thousands of years and then just disappeared in the span of one lifetime. The Minoans, for instance, had flushing toilets and it would take another 3,000 years until France had flushing toilets to give you some perspective on that. And in a 50-year period, we went from these vast kingdoms, four-storey palaces, international trade, to these small, isolated villages. Some areas even lost written language. So ultimately, what I'm trying to show is that the history of technological development hasn't gone in a straight line, which then eventually shot up in maybe the 19th century. It actually, it starts, it develops, it gets lost and forgotten, and then it starts again. And this cycle continues. And at the end of the day, humans are humans. There's a common thread that links all of us, whether that's on you know, the distant mountains of the east or, or the frozen seas of the north. And I think it's so, so important that we realise the people of the past aren't as different to us as we'd like to believe. So I think when you said, you know, when you said that the history of technology should be revised and should be, you know, it's it's much earlier than we thought. And even um, defining what is technology is a very good um, point. So this is a conversation for another time, but this should, yeah, this is so much to say about uh, that topic. So um, I got a question for you. Um, you are a language person, a tech person, a classic person. You have different hats. So um, my question is, in a world where English is becoming a global language, what is the importance of learning other languages such as Italian or Latin? That's such an interesting and complex question. And there's loads to say on it. Um, I think Professor David Crystal actually wrote a whole book on this topic. Um, but I think I can provide a reasonable answer within the given time frame without reciting the whole book. Um, I would first define what a global language is and then why English is considered to be this, particularly as there are far more native speakers of Mandarin. I think Crystal said that a language gains a global status when it develops this special kind of role that is recognised in most countries where large numbers of people speak that language. Mother tongue use by itself 
cannot give a language a global status as it has to have been taken up by other countries in the world. And I would say that English does have that special global status. English is actually Duolingo's most learned language in 2022. But that then begs the question, why English? Well, to establish a language, it would take a militarily powerful nation but to maintain it, there must be an economically powerful nation. It's always been like this. And it became a particularly critical factor in around the 19th and 20th centuries with all the economic developments and the new communication technologies such as uh, radio. Any language at the centre of such an explosion of international activity would have found itself with this global status um, but as technology and the internet continues to develop I think that automatic translation technologies will be used a lot more and will therefore have a major impact on the use of English on the internet which is why and I may be stretching a bit here but I think that it may be why other languages aren't as important to learn in this respect. However, that idea only works if you learn a language purely for the ability to uh, communicate to others, and it completely discards all the other amazing reasons to learn another language. And there are far too many that I could possibly mention, but some that have particularly resonated with me is that it's less about communication and more about connection when it comes to languages. And it also helps your brain grow as it allows for better memory function and more creativity. I also think you become more open-minded as you learn about the culture and history behind the language. So for example, why learn Latin instead of Old English, for instance? Well, one of the reasons is to do with learning about ancient Rome. When reading Latin, I've encountered a wide range of texts, including history, uh, philosophy and law, which has given me a deeper understanding of ancient Rome. Um, I'd also say that grammar and the structure of the language has helped me understand how the Romans communicated and thought. I've also learned about Latin's influence on modern languages. So ultimately, what I'm trying to say is, despite English being a global language and technology becoming more and more powerful, we still need language as it helps people to gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of its culture. And on top of this, it also has so many cognitive benefits like developing your multitasking abilities, for instance. Terrific, terrific. What's your definition of a language? And do you do you take programming languages count as actual languages? Um that's such an inter- interesting question and one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. As of yet, I haven't actually reached a conclusion 
but I will try to come to some sort of conclusion in what I'm saying now. And usually when I come across a statement or a question I want to discuss, um, especially if it's philosophical, I tend to define the key terms in the statement. And so earlier when I was thinking about this, I Googled the definition of the word language with one of my teachers. Um, and I was unfortunately let down because Google gave me two meanings, one of which was helpful and another of which was useless. Now, if I remember correctly, the first definition was that language is the, I think, the principal method of human communication consisting of words and gestures. Now, with this definition, it would be easy to argue that no programming languages don't count as actual languages. But the second definition was slightly more ambiguous as it was described simply as a method of communication. And you could say that high-level programming languages, such as Python, humans communicating with computers, and so are actual languages. So we've come to a bit of a halt with this method. However, I do think technically you could call a programming language a language, albeit a constructed one. It's not a natural language and should not be treated like one, but it is created to communicate information from one entity to another. Language broken down into its purest and perhaps most reductionist definition is that it's a system of communication. But by saying this, a few problems arise. And I think the main one that really pops out to me is if we say programming languages or actual languages on the basis that they communicate information from one entity to another, then why can't we say maths and language? Or as you mentioned earlier, music, piano. I think we go down a bit of a slippery slope here. So again, I think we've come to a bit of a halt. Instead, I will go through some of the key differences and similarities between programming languages and human languages to try to reach some sort of a conclusion. So they're similar in the respect that they can make things happen. Spoken words can change people's perspectives and can lead to action. Pro programming languages in a similar way can be used to save and display information that leads to decision making and change. Um, also, both types of languages can be developed over time. New concepts can be introduced. Um, there's also another similarity, which is an interesting one that always raises a few eyebrows when I say it. Both languages can allow you to express yourself well. So in a spoken language, for instance, someone can speak with a lot of ums if they're having difficulty getting their message across, while a great orator can express things in a way that truly touches people. And you can do the same with programming languages. It can be written inefficiently, so perhaps the code may still work, 
that it's impossible to understand. To have good code, you need helpful variable names. You need to divide it up into reusable pieces. Maybe comment on the code and include, include lots of white space. Without all this, it would just be total chaos. However, I'd say a major difference between the human and programming languages is the amount of time it takes to learn. While it may take time to pick up the nuances, an experienced uh, software engineer can learn a new program in language within a few days. But if you went to an experienced French speaker and asked them to start working in Mandarin next week, they would probably question sanity. <laughs> there are also considerable differences between programming languages themselves which may take longer to get used to. So imperative and functional languages or um, languages where you have to explicitly manage memory and variable types versus a language such as Python, where types are not explicitly declared. But these complexities are still easier to master in comparison to the, to the nuances with human languages. The logic behind programming is universal and can be understood despite language differences. There are also huge differences in terms of rules and patterns and programming languages can be extremely prescriptive. So if you miss a semicolon or a colon at the end of the statement, the entire program may not work at all. I remember this happened to me once and, and I spent hours trying to figure out what was wrong only to find out it was the lack of a colon at the end of the line which messed everything up and I was so annoyed. I could also switch the order of a couple of lines of code thinking the computer will still understand, it should, st it should still work but then the computer will not do what I want it to do unlike in English where I can switch words around depending on how I want it to sound, for example. But ultimately, I think that although both involve words and complexity and artistry, their purpose and functionality are very different. So to reach a mini conclusion, I'd like to say no. I don't think programming languages should be counted as actual languages. It's the fact that you asked the question could indicate this answer. It's not like you'd ask if French, for instance, is an actual language. I agree. I totally I agree with you, Millie. And um, the next the next question I'd like to ask you is, um. How have recent technologies helped their learning and research in the humanities? Well, one purpose of learning the humanities is to teach people about how humans interact with the world. Um, and you could even perhaps go as far to say that learning the humanities improves the human experience. And with the development of technology, we are able to... Uh, 
translate the purpose of humanities into action much more efficiently than they would have been able to do a hundred years ago, for instance. Um, there's a term I read about recently, uh, digital humanities, and it's a field that's grown tremendously over, I think, like the past 40 years. Um, and it's essentially where you apply computational tools and methods to traditional humanities disciplines, such as history, uh, philosophy, literature. So exciting. I think it's been claimed as the next big thing on the intellectual landscape. And it really makes me think that at some point in the, I suppose, near future, technology will, in a way, pervade all aspects of humanities research where the digital native will succeed against the clumsy digital immigrant, which shows us really how important it is to be aware of how technology grows over the time. Did you always want to study um, languages at university? Not always, actually. Um, I decided about a year ago on Christmas Day when I was speaking to a cousin of mine who was applying to university and we were discussing whether it was worth it since, you know, it can be quite costly. Um, and nowadays, more and more people are going into apprenticeships. So she then asked me, um, well, what do you want to study at university? To which I confidently replied with biomedical engineering. And she said, why? And I froze. Not because I couldn't come up with a reason as to why I love biology and wanted to enter a field, but rather because I couldn't understand why I, cho why I chose to study that over something like English, for instance. Now, I know that sounds odd and it sounds like I've gone crazy, but to me it makes sense. Because from what I understand, you go to university to learn how to think and how to formulate opinions and arguments. And what better way to do that than to study the humanities? Now, that's not to say that no one should study science at university. I think this would be silly. But for someone like me, who's interested in both science and humanities, it makes more sense to study a subject like English or classics. Um, if you want to become an engineer, to be hired, you may need a degree. But to learn the actual skills, I don't think you necessarily do need that degree. All you need is the internet. I think Elon Musk said something similar about how to learn. All you really need are books. Now, of course, if you want to be an engineer, it would be useful to put that theory you learn from the books into action. And that's something you could get through an apprenticeship or a work placement, for example. I'm sure there are many other ways of gaining that hands-on experience I'm unaware of. And with, as I said, less people going to university in the future, I'm sure there will be more options for people who want to go down the, the science route. For me, on the other hand, I do want to go to university, but I'd like to learn languages. I'd like to learn about philosophy and literature. I'd like to discuss and debate 
and I think doing the humanities degree will allow for that. And if ever I want to go back into technology or science in the future, I could always read a book, Google it, email someone. And from what I'm hearing, I think you will be a great fit in that um in that specific study, which is humanities and um, science. And I can wait to see what you will become in the future. And Millie, the next question I would like to ask is, what's next for you? What's, what's coming into your life? Well, great question. Um, as you know, I'm hoping to study classics in Italian at university, um, but I don't currently learn Italian at school. So I started learning the language on Duolingo, but the lessons, they felt more like I was being tested rather than taught. So instead, I will be taking a break from Duolingo and I will experiment with a few different language learning methods. Um, So for instance, when I was learning uh, French, One of the reasons I don't have huge issues with pronunciation, particularly when I come across a new piece of vocab, um, was because my teachers properly trained me with phonics. And so I'm going to independently try that with Italian, with a bit of support from my teachers, and see how it turns out. Hopefully, through this, in the future, I'll be able to learn other languages without the need for that extra support that I'm getting now. Is there a woman in tech that inspires you? Well, I wouldn't say that there's one in particular that immediately springs to mind, but I've always admired the code breakers at Bletchley Park, um, a group of women who for many years were a mystery. They worked in signals intelligence during World War II, Um, And although when I say Bletchley Park, you might think of names such as Alan Turing or Tommy Flowers, majority of the staff, three quarters, I believe, uh, were actually women. Um, And these women were clever in their own right and worked just as tirelessly to crack the German Enigma codes. The top secret nature of their work was the reason they remained unknown for so long. But it's amazing that they can now be held up as role models and an inspiration for future generations of women. Yay! We almost had the head of our interview, so I'm going to give you some quick um, fire questions. First, if you could choose, what will be your final words? <laughs> um, I would. It would probably be something like... Uh, last words are for fools who have spoken with no substance wow that's deep (laughs) oh so what's the best compliment you ever received um well i had a friend who was on chemo and so his quality of life was pretty low and then he told me that if it wasn't for me he would have asked to stop taking it a long a long time ago i don't think anything will ever top that compliment and one of the reasons it resonated with me so much was because it truly made me understand the importance of being kind and compassionate especially in the 
difficult and divisive world we live in today. So if you have 10 million pounds, what would you spend it on? Um, I love that question. Um, I was actually talking to someone about this the other day. Um, I'd probably invest the money in starting my own coffee house. Now, to those who know me, they would probably find that quite odd, considering I despise coffee. I think it tastes vile. I much prefer tea, but a Yorkshire tea would be quite nice. But anyway, um, there is an explanation for this choice. My coffee house wouldn't be like uh, Starbucks or Costa, where people sit glued to their laptops or phones and you know rarely talk to each other. I'd base my coffee house on 17th century penny universities. Now, there's a theory that coffee is responsible for the Enlightenment, the age of reason, um, because when coffee came to Europe, it changed everything. People were less tired and more active in some ways, but it didn't just change people's moods. They now had a place to gather that didn't involve getting drunk or, or praying. Coffee houses back then became a place for intellectuals to meet and exchange ideas. Some people call these penny universities because anyone could walk in, buy a cup of co coffee for a penny and listen to some incredible intellectuals talk. They allowed different classes to mix as it was for anyone who wanted to learn about the latest news or debate about topics ranging from uh, science to religion to politics. They were essentially like the internet of their day. And things have changed over the last 300 years. Today, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Today, instant news is delivered to us from all around the world, straight to our phones. And we can discuss and debate in online forums. But you could argue that these online conversations are not real conversations is they lack intensity, vigour and passion, which is why which is why I'd want to see the return of these old coffee houses or penny universities, not for the disgusting coffee, but rather for the real face-to-face -face conversations, which I think we see so little of nowadays. Incredible. Next to my, my house, there is a underground coffee shop, which is the best place ever to just read and have a quiet time even if there is you know there's this music going on very very classy and relaxing and you just can stay there for almost two hours just and the coffee shop just has um have a library and you can just pick one book like and you read it and you just put it back very great place to go and I will be the first person when I go to UK to go to your coffee shop <laughs> thank you that place you're talking about sounds amazing if they sell tea that will be like my heaven <laughs> so tell me about a hobby of yours um well I really enjoy archery and um, especially when I have some sort of problem that needs to be solved it helps clear my thoughts and see the situation as it actually is I'm not just looking at my physical target so 
every time you have a pro, uh, like an issue with someone and you just visualize that person as a target and you just shoot your is that is that it <laughs> yeah in a way it's good to relieve stress and anger uh, <laughs> but it's it's also in the sense that when I'm looking at my physical target it's not just this round blob of wood I'm looking at my goal and actually the arrow and the bow in my hand are not just some other random bits of wood they're instruments to attain my goal and so when I'm sort of on the field arching I think some of my best thoughts there um partially because it's good to let off some steam but also because I'm visualizing what I'm sort of aiming for in two different ways physically and then kind of in my head what what I dream my future to be if that makes sense I think this is a very very productive way to let us your steam anger and and makes you more focus on your goals and yeah this is great and this is the end of this interview but I have one last question for you it is how can people connect with you oh uh, well listeners can connect with me via my public instagram account classics with melly um or follow me on linkedin great 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 so this is it there was that was a very a very amazing interview with Millie Takwar and this is Virgin Celestine from Women in Tech podcast and we will see you next time for another great Women in Tech bye bye thank you hey it's Millie Thakra here based in London England I'm a Women in Tech podcast intern and you're listening to Women in Tech The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.